Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The hair still go up in the back of my neck when I think about the thrill of some of the experiences. Things like seeing the Aurora Australis. We had people wintering over down there, go down in August and get out on the sea ice and the silence. Yeah, it's pretty special. It's pretty special. And so it's, it's a very, very precious thing to maintain. Now my Harumai, welcome to our changing world. Ko Clerken Kanan Antarctica is a place that captures the imagination. And you can hear the wonder in Pat Langhorn's voice as she talks about her experiences there. This week, Katie Gossett and I want to introduce you to three remarkable physicists and their research work in Antarctica. And first up is Emeritus Professor Pat Langhorn. Pat and I caught up at the University of Otago, where she worked for 32 years in the physics department. Pat retired last year, but is continuing research on some projects. There was a bit of renovations happening within the department, so we decided to head outside and sit down by the water of Leith River that flows through campus. Now Pat's research area is Antarctic sea ice physics. So first, she introduces me to the ice and its importance. So it's salty and it's usually less than a couple of metres thick and it covers the ocean at some times of year. Because there's both in Antarctica, right? There's sea ice and there's also freshwater ice. There is. On the land, there's ice that has, once upon a time it was snow, that has got squashed together. And that ice is fresh. And of course, with time, it flows down off the continent and into the ocean. So once that ice from the land is floating on the ocean, we tend to call it an ice shelf. And an ice shelf can be very thick. It can be uh, kilometres thick. Wow. One or two kilometres thick. And getting thinner as you go out seaward, but even at the front it might be 100 metres, 200 metres thick. But the sea ice you're saying is thinner than that? Yes. It's usually less than a couple of metres thick. Well two to three metres thick. That's because it's just frozen over one winter. So what happens is that every summer in Antarctica, there's more or less no sea ice. And then through the winter, a cover forms over the ocean. And that cover is, you know, it's not just a small area, it's twice the area of Australia that forms every winter and then breaks up and disappears in the summer 
and then forms again next winter, breaks up and disappears, etc. And that's gone on for a long time. And it matters because it's white. Now that might seem kind of obvious, but it's because it's white, it prevents some of the heat from the sun from getting in the ocean, it gets reflected instead. So if the ocean is covered by sea ice, then less heat gets into it. So its presence or absence does really matter to climate. So it has an impact globally in terms of the climate? It does. The other thing that happens is that as it forms, it pushes salt out of the structure. Ice wants to be pure ice. It doesn't want to be grotty old salty ice. So it pushes salt out and that very cold salty water sinks to the bottom of the ocean and drives circulation that extends from the poles right up to the equator. So it, a very slow oceanic circulation is driven by the freezing of sea ice. So sea ice has a far-ranging impact in terms of reflecting sunlight and driving ocean circulation. And Pat tells me that it also affects storm tracks, which directly impacts New Zealand weather. And at times a year, sea ice is actually our closest neighbour. But just as we start to get into Pat's work studying sea ice thickness, it starts to rain. Quick, stuff it up your jumper. (laughs) Back inside, we managed to find a large classroom space where we can continue our chat. So, back to that question of studying sea ice thickness. It is a bit embarrassing that for scientists that it's still not possible to easily measure sea ice thickness from satellite. The problem is that radar doesn't penetrate and reflect from the bottom of the sea ice because sea ice is salty. And it's also warm. Now, that might seem a bit odd to say that it's warm, but it's what I mean by warm is that it's not far below its freezing point. And that means that there's liquid, salty liquid, present in the ice structure. So it means that radar just doesn't get through, bounce off the bottom and come back, which is how we would usually measure the thickness of ice on the land, for example. We don't have a good method. Yes. And it's a big area. And also it changes every year. Changes every year. Changes every day. That's one of the complications about Antarctica is it's a very dynamic place as well. We're talking about the ice on the land. Well, the ice on the land focuses its own microclimates. So there's howling gales, catabatic winds come howling down the glaciers and onto the sea ice and they push the sea ice away. So there are places where there'll be sea ice one day and then the next day it's all gone. These places are called polinias and they're places where huge amount of ice are made. They're called the ice factories because every time the ocean surface is cleared of ice, the temperature's still very low heat's still being sucked out of the ocean and so you're still forming sea ice. So where in a season you might get two metres of ice in the average place, in a polynia you'll get in excess of 10 metres of ice. But it all gets blown away. Miserable places never take a holiday in a polynia. 
is what <laughs> I would say. Good advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Miserable places. Now, Pat actually started her research career trying to use radar to measure sea ice sickness in the Canadian Arctic. But it didn't work. So instead, she completed her PhD on crystal alignment in sea ice, and that was in 1982. It was a few years later, in 1985, that she got an invitation from Bill Robinson to join a New Zealand Antarctic expedition to be part of, well, a crazy-sounding experiment. Real-life ice road trucker experiment, (laughs) essentially, it was. There's a job only a few would dare. If you think of a ship going through water, it puts out bow waves that sort of form an arc around the ship. Well, the same thing happens if you drive a vehicle over ice, you get waves radiating outwards from that vehicle. What we did was we made a road on the sea ice, late, well, you know, just a place where we would drive repeatedly and then come up at it five kilometres an hour 10 kilometres an hour, etc. 50 kilometres an hour, 60 kilometres an hour. No more, please, no <laughs> more, please. It's too scary in the tent with the instruments. And alongside so, that driving, you had strain gauges, so you were measuring yes, what was happening in the ice. Yes, strain is a measure of the contraction and expansion of the ice. When the 60 kilometre per hour driving got too hairy, Bill Robinson convinced the American team to loan them a plane to fly low over the ice to exert a downward force on the ice and get that final high-speed data point that they needed. The hairs still go up in the back of my neck when I think about it. He handed me the... Bill handed me the radio and he said, talk to the pilot. What? I'm in control of this aircraft (laughs) coming at high speed, very low. It sounds wild, I have to say, (laughs) of all of the experiments. Your first expedition to Antarctica. It was. It was really, yeah, it was really fun. Not just fun, also good science, which is published in the journal Nature in 1988 and the start of a stellar Antarctic research career for Pat. She has investigated a number of things sea ice related. The mechanical properties of the ice, the interaction between ice shelves and sea ice, the mushy layer found under the sea ice, supercooled water, which we'll talk a bit more about later. But in recent years, she's actually come full circle back to this issue of how to measure sea ice thickness. But now, instead of trying to use radar, she's using Rosie. After 35 years, I'm back measuring sea ice thickness, but this time with electromagnetic induction techniques. So tell me about electromagnetic induction. So what it does is, well, let me just try and describe what the sensor looks like. It's about four metres long, and it looks like a torpedo, right? And it's flown under an aircraft. It's winched down on a rope so that it hangs under the aircraft and flies about 15 metres above the sea ice. And because it's flying, we call it an EM bird. And the one I've used is called Rosie. Very important. And what she does is she sends out electromagnetic signals and 
when these signals go into insulating materials like ice and air, then nothing happens. But if it comes on a conducting material like seawater, it causes currents to flow that cause a magnetic field that is then sensed by another coil in Rosie. So she's able to tell how far away the nearest conductor is. And when you're flying over air and sea ice, then the conducting, the most conducting thing is the seawater. So it tells how far away the seawater is. There's a laser on board which also tells how far away the snow surface is. And then you subtract the snow surface from the ice surface and you get the total snow plus ice thickness. In 2017, we got to do the first Antarctic survey with the aircraft using Rosie, which was very exciting and which is what still got me all fired up and coming to work voluntarily. You know? <laughs> so that's, yeah, for me that's been a really fun and nice way to finish off. And a full circle. In a full circle, exactly, yes. And all that time, of course, all that 40 years that I've been working on these things, satellites have been up there doing more and more fabulous things, um, and we learn more and more from them, but we still don't know sea ice thickness. So it's nice that that's some, a place to finish, really. Pat tells me that the plan for the future is to use Rosie's data to calibrate the satellites. Right now, the satellites can tell the distance between the top of the snow and ice and the top of the ocean, like how much it is floating out of the water. But just that one measurement, then you kind of have to guess the rest. So if Rosie can take better measurements, then they can use this to do better calibrations of the satellite data. Pat has contributed hugely to our knowledge of sea ice. In 2019, she was awarded the New Zealand Antarctic Medal. And you can probably tell, I had a great time talking with Pat. This like super down to earth, modest, brilliant researcher who took the time to explain things to me when I wasn't quite getting it. Who sheepishly admitted to liking things that went fast, like planes and cars. Who spoke warmly of colleagues and collaborators who have helped her along the way and who also told me stories of barriers she has faced. Because although that Kiwi expedition in 1985 was her first time to Antarctica, it wasn't the first time that Pat had tried to go. I finished my degree in physics in 1976 in the UK from the University of Aberdeen. And I applied to go to Antarctica with British Antarctic Survey. That's in Britain. They're the people who do Antarctic research. And my name's Pat. They were interested in the physicist Pat Langhorne mm -hmm. until they realised it was Patricia Langhorne, not Patrick Langhorne. Whereupon I got a letter saying I was the wrong gender. It worked out for Pat. And her career has included many visits to the ice. Her love of Antarctica made retiring a difficult decision for her. But she has now handed the baton over. Picking it up and running with it is senior lecturer Dr Inga Smith, who did her honours project with Pat, and then went on to do a PhD with her too. 
And Inga is just getting ready to head to the ice. Due to COVID, most science events were cancelled last year. So there is more science going on this year. It's still not everything. But our event, we're very lucky, it's meant to go ahead. And one of those requirements uh, with COVID is that everyone isolates for two weeks before they go down. So they've set up a special facility. We put on heavy jackets, pants, boots and gloves. And Inga brings me to the cold lab, where they have cores of sea ice kept in a freezer. She pulls one out so I can have a look. So sea ice, when it forms, is, is not like freshwater freezing. So the fact that you've got salt in the ocean water, the salt is actually pushed out as the ice freezes. So that's why it's got that grey, opaque look to it. That's quite a different look to what you'd see if you saw frozen lake water or frozen, frozen tap water. Now, the freezing temperature of fresh water, as we all know, is generally zero degrees. For this Antarctic seawater, the freezing temperature depends on the pressure and also the salinity. This creates really interesting conditions where the freshwater ice shelves and the sea ice meet, resulting in supercooled water. Water below its freezing point, but still liquid. Inga explains. Overall, the salinity of McMurdo Sound is around 35 parts per thousand. And so the freezing point at, near the surface at that salinity is around minus 1.9. As that salt is pushed out down into the water, it gets saltier and it sinks and it's colder. And that comes underneath the ice shelf and dissolves or melts the bottom of the ice shelf at depth. And so you get fresh water coming off the bottom of that ice shelf, mixing in with the seawater to form something that's known as ice shelf water. And that rises up alongside the bottom of the ice shelf. As it rises up, um, it's coming into a region with, with lower pressure. It can actually then be uh, below the local freezing point. And so it can be still liquid, but colder than its freezing point. So it's primed to freeze. And so when it does freeze, it can snap freeze into crystals. And if we get those freeze frozen crystals in the water column floating up, we call them frazzle. As they make their way up underneath the ice shelf, if they accumulate under the sea ice and start growing there, they're known as platelet ice. These unique conditions, the supercooled water that's primed to snap freeze and these ice crystals and platelets, actually makes it really tricky to study under the ice in Antarctica. And the usual oceanographic equipment just doesn't work that well. So Inga and her collaborators are trying to change that by developing a remote sensor that can work well under the ice shelves. So one of the things that we're interested in for this project is um, specifically measuring the supercooling under the ice shelves because mm -hmm. at the moment we've got these cold cavity ice shelves like the Ross ice shelf with the supercooling underneath. And what we're ultimately interested in is how is that going to change with global warming? So yeah, so ultimately we want to have instruments that could go out and make these measurements and, and tell us what the health of these ice shelves basically is remotely. So um, we've called it HIPSME, which is a High Precision Supercooling Measuring Instrument. It's the acronym. Uh, and so this instrument is designed to go inside ISFIN, which is Brittany Schmidt's underwater vehicle. Um, so it's like an unmanned, unpersoned submarine that you can put instruments in, about three metres long. Okay. And so uh, we'll take that ISFIN instrument put me inside it, send it through underneath the sea ice, and then it'll swim under the ice shelf. So you're, like, driving it, like remote control? Yeah, yeah. so Brittany and her team, there's uh, only nine trained specialist operators in the world, um, and so they operate it and send it down from the surface. 
Inga's work is experimental, but she's hoping that this equipment will be able to deal with the conditions and give accurate measurements. Because although the Arctic models have correctly predicted the sea ice melt there, the Antarctic sea ice has remained relatively unchanged. But, Inga says, everyone thinks it's just a matter of time. I mean, sea ice is the largest geophysical change on the Earth. I think that's one of the really interesting things. You know, it kind of expands and contracts, and covers this big area and then retracts into the, co- the coast each year. Um, and the Arctic sea ice, I think everyone knows about in terms of its changes and how it's been melting and, and shrinking. Um, the Antarctic sea ice is actually not so much yet, but all predictions are that it's going to change over time. And so, you know, that's the thing that kind of keeps me awake at night is the future of Antarctic sea ice and and when it's going to change because global warming is not going away and people haven't made the changes yet that are really going to make these changes to our climate. So, yeah, so snow and ice are our kind of first things that we're going to see. I wish Inga the very best for her work in Antarctica and leave her to her preparations. Huge thanks to Emeritus Professor Pat Langhorn and especially to Senior Lecturer Dr Inga Smith for taking time out of a hectic preparation schedule to talk to me. This piece includes excerpts of the sound art for the audiovisual work One Data Day, composed of Beneath Above Playing With Listening by Alyssa Goodrich and featuring Antarctic field recordings by Gabby O'Connor. Thanks to both Alyssa and Gabby for allowing its use. Now, this episode isn't about gender imbalances in science, but it would be remiss of us not to note that, although we've come a long way from Britain in the 70s, physics research remains a largely male-dominated area. Our next story is about University of Canterbury professor Jenny Adams, who recently became the first woman to be awarded the Dan Walls Medal, handed out by the New Zealand Institute of Physics, for her work on neutrinos. Now, Professor Adams' research also involves Antarctica, but instead of investigating the ice underfoot, she is looking to outer space, trying to capture high-energy particles that might carry information from far-flung parts of the universe. Katie Gossett caught up with her to talk about her work. It's a bit like finding a needle in a haystack. But in a vast continent like Antarctica, scientists are trying to track down an elusive particle, the astrophysical neutrino. We'll come back to the ice and its place in this story in a bit. But first, what exactly is a neutrino? Well, first up, you should know the neutrino is going to be the hero of this story. So I've given it its own theme tune. There it is. The neutrino is an electrically neutral particle, so I'm using some slightly neutral music. Neutrinos are invisible, and as particles, they have almost no mass. You never see an actual neutrino. I mean, there's billions of neutrinos passing through your body from the sun, and you don't sense or feel any of those. That's Jenny Adams, professor at the University of Canterbury, or more specifically astroparticle physicist, which, as that title sounds, is a mixture of astronomy or astrophysics and particle physics. When you talk about being a particle physicist, it's actually high-energy particles that you're usually thinking about. And when you're an astroparticle physicist, instead of having particle accelerators on Earth, you're thinking about the particle accelerators that the universe has provided for us. 
And I guess if you say that at a party and someone asks you what you do, that's probably a bit of a showstopper. Oh, sometimes it's a conversation starter, but yeah, it can be. So I guess that description would be tapered to who was asking somewhat. I mean, I talk about particles and, and what are particles. So often I would talk to people about, you know, do you know what an electron is or do you know what a proton is? Because that's the stuff we learn at high school, but we don't always hear about neutrinos. There are lots and lots of neutrinos produced in our sun in the, in the same processes that produce the light. But even though neutrinos are given out from the sun, they don't really affect our life because those ones just pass straight through the earth. But what Jenny Adams and her team have learned is that neutrinos are what she calls unique messengers from the universe and they have some unusual properties. Because they interact so weakly and so rarely, that makes them very uh, unique in that they can come from places in the universe, very dense objects, and also far distances in the universe without losing or information or being absorbed so they aren't deflected on their path, which is unlike most other messengers that we could have from the universe. And this is an important point for her research because whilst neutrinos attract a lot of academic interest of their own, Jenny's more interested in what they can tell us about other particles and places in the universe. And she's not looking for just any neutrino. As I mentioned earlier, she wants to find the astrophysical ones. That's a type of high-energy neutrino which is believed to originate in distant parts of the universe. And she wants to find them because they could give her information about other high-energy particles. So, in a way, she's tracking neutrinos to find out more about the company they keep, the other messengers from the universe. And we'll meet some of those now. So first up, the gamma ray, kind of the escape artist of the story. So typically, when we're thinking of astronomy, we're thinking about light um, and usually optical wavelengths, but then also high energy light, which is what we call gamma rays. So those are our typical messengers from the universe. But as you can hear, I've used some slightly stealthy music here because the gamma rays tend to disappear before you can get too much info out of them. At high energies, gamma rays are absorbed very easily. So they are absorbed by other matter. They interact with other matter. So you can't actually view the universe um, at those high energies with, with gamma rays. Then we have cosmic rays, another type of messenger from the universe, and a bit of a wild card. Cosmic rays carry a lot of energy. And that's actually just typically protons, so um, very high energy protons or protons of, of, of various energies. And protons are electrically charged, they have a positive charge. And that causes a problem, hence the slightly warped music. Because of that positive charge, cosmic rays get diverted as they enter the Earth's atmosphere. They're deflected in magnetic fields, so they, their path is bent in magnetic fields and they can sort of spiral type path in a magnetic field or, or just at least bent. And so that means you can't get a direction from a proton or from where it's come from. So we've observed or detected on extremely high energy um, cosmic rays, very, very high energy protons. And we don't know where in the universe they're being accelerated. So we have some ideas, but we don't really know what objects in the universe are really capable of producing such high energy particles, such high energy protons. And the trouble is, even though they come into the Earth's atmosphere and they actually interact and create a shower of particles. From the shower of particles, you can tell the direction that the proton came into Earth's atmosphere. But because of this 
bending in a magnetic field, that doesn't actually, if you sort of point that trajectory back into the sky, it's not going to tell you where that proton came from. Which brings us back to the humble hero of this story, the neutrino. Jenny explains why. Pretty much whenever protons interact, they produce neutrinos. So that's what the motivation is. These protons will interact somewhere near their source, produce neutrinos. Those neutrinos will travel in straight lines, pretty much unaffected. So if we can detect those neutrinos associated with the proton's production site, then those we can get a a direction from and they'll point back and tell us where these high-energy objects are. So what objects are we talking about here? Our current hunch and most likely candidate is objects we call active galactic nuclei. And so from the name active galactic nuclei, you can maybe understand the the centre of a galaxy. So there are supermassive black holes probably at the centre of Almost all galaxies have a supermassive black hole. Our galaxy has a supermassive black hole at at its centre. But some of those are are active and they have jets emanating from them. And while the term black hole has made its way into everyday language, meaning some kind of voracious force that gobbles everything up, in astronomical terms, there's more to it than that. The basic idea is that you have this matter accreting around and then basically physical properties that can be conserved mean that you end up with these jets of particles that are actually shooting away from a black hole. So people kind of always find that a little odd because you think, you know, the black hole is just this all-devouring object while actually only within a sort of certain distance of a black hole is there no escape. Otherwise, it's just, you know, like a supermassive sun and, you know, it's a gravitational body that you're gravitationally affected by, but otherwise it's just going to change your path. So there are actually jets coming out of supermassive black holes. So when a galaxy has a black hole that acts like that, we call it an active galactic nuclei, and it produces loads of radiation. It's really bright, and so you don't see the rest of the galaxy around it. You just see the central object that's producing loads of photons and, and is very bright. So that's where we suspect that cosmic rays will be accelerated in those jets. So to recap, Jenny and her research team have two goals. One, to discover a specific high-energy type of neutrino, known as an astrophysical neutrino. And two, to point the astrophysical neutrino back to its site of origin, possibly an active galactic nucleus. And it's this search that's led them to Antarctica, where Jenny is part of an international team that's built the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. The project cost 279 million US dollars and was mostly funded by the American National Science Foundation with help from partner funding agencies. The lead institution is the University of Madison, Wisconsin, but up to 300 physicists from 53 institutions in 12 countries are involved in working with what is essentially a massive neutrino detector. So our detector is below the ice. We have embedded a whole kind of array. So if you sort of imagine three-dimensional array of detectors below the surface in the ice, we call it ice cube because it's a cubic kilometre. So it's one kilometre by one kilometre by one kilometre. The ice cube is essentially made up of cables suspended deep into the ice. It's not possible to dig a big hole for it as it would collapse. So the team instead uses a hot water drill to melt the ice right down to a depth of two and a half kilometres. They then lower a series of cables, each with about 60 detectors attached to it. And the detectors themselves are glass spheres and inside there is a, a light detector 
and some computer boards that when the light has been detected by that light sensor, then the signal is, is digitised and sent up the cables. The reason the ice cube is so huge is that neutrinos are, as we've mentioned before, hard to detect. What you have to always do is wait for it to interact. And so that's why you want a really big detector because it ups your chances that that the neutrino might um, by chance interact. And when it does interact, it produces other particles and those particles produce light. So we are actually detecting the light produced by particles produced when the neutrino interacts. The light from those secondary particles can extend over a kilometre. And so the team needs a large volume of transparent material either water or ice, through which to detect it. And that's what made the South Pole an obvious choice. So that was the great sort of joy of the Antarctic ice, is it turned out to have very few impurities that would sort of scatter the light and make the light pattern harder to interpret, because from that light pattern we can then deduce the path actually of the particles that produced by the neutrinos. So you sort of imagine a neutrino come in, however you want to imagine that, it produces another particle that travels through and has a sort of cone of light that it's emanating off it. And then that light is detected on this array. And from the pattern of light, we can deduce the direction of the neutrinos and we can also deduce their energy and that allows us to do the astronomy with it. This is big picture work that takes a long time and requires patience. Even the cables took time to install, as the drilling could only be done during the Antarctic summer. But the build was completed in 2010 with 86 cables installed, and then in 2013 the team was buoyed up by a major achievement. We provided evidence that we had seen astrophysical neutrinos, so we were able to convince the astrophysical research community that the neutrinos that we had seen in our detector really were coming from the same locations where cosmic rays, the highest energy particles that have ever been observed, coming from those same locations. The results actually were collected over some years before 2013 and then talked about and argued about and then we presented those results. That discovery won the Ice Cube team the title of 2013 Breakthrough of the Year by the British magazine Physics World. Then, a few years later, another milestone. The observatory produced the first evidence that their hunch about just where these high-energy particles are coming from might be correct. So if we see a high-energy neutrino that we're fairly confident is an astrophysical one, which is only about 10 per year, then we send out an alert, a message to these other telescopes, uh, gamma ray telescopes, and they look then, um, they swivel their dishes or their, they're sometimes in satellites, and they look in that direction. And that's what happened for this particular one when we did line up with a active galactic nuclei is that we had sent out an alert and that was then there was a whole sort of flurry of other telescopes saying hey this is actually really high energy at the moment it seems to be flaring um, so they had been studying it over years and now it was actually producing much more radiation than it normally did so there was a lot of studies done on this object so we discovered the neutrino and then a lot of other projects kind of verified that this was a unique object that was significant, that the neutrino was most likely coming from that object and associated with it. It's work of this sort over a long period that recently won Jenny Adams a significant award. The Dan Walls Medal recognises a local physicist doing important work here in New Zealand. 
Ironically, Jenny created this award back in 2008 when she was president of the New Zealand Institute of Physicists, but she never expected to receive it herself. Particularly because the sort of work I do is very collaborative and it's hard to point to individual contributions in it. And I think to do this kind of work, is, it's not actually possible without a big collaboration because it's, it's too large for any single person. So it was, it was nice and I was very, um, felt very proud to be awarded this year. Jenny is the first woman to win the award and she's aware there aren't many females in her field. It's something she's talked about with her daughters. You know, I could tell them the sorts of things I've read about and it's, it's to do with expectation and a, and a cycle and it's not a, a well-trodden path. A lot of what people do is associated with what their parents might expect them to do. And I think, well, my oldest daughter is keen on physics because I've definitely encouraged her, but it, yeah, I don't have an easy answer to why there aren't as many women doing physics. But it is something she'd like to see change, and her own family might be part of that movement. After all, her daughter, Kaya Jorgensen, has grown up watching her mother study the cosmos. I'm not sure how much I understand her research, but she does talk about it a little bit. I know about the neutrinos and the detector, and they're trying to find out where they're coming from. And she's pleased to know that her mother, as the lead scientist for the New Zealand contingent of Ice Cube, is part of such an important project. It makes me think that it's good that some people were out there trying to figure out what's going on. And it's a bit inspiring, I guess, to know that she understands so much about the world and about how everything's working out especially in the universe when it's just like, quite confusing. And it has influenced her future direction. She really encourages going out and doing maths, like she sets us little maths tasks and encourages using like logical thinking brains. And I think it's definitely made me want to do something to do with science and physics in school and maybe out of school as well. For Jenny Adams herself, a lot of it comes back to that age-old issue of managing the juggle between work and home life. She hopes that more women can achieve that and realise that not just the world, but the universe can be their playground too. It is challenging in an academic environment, but I think the more women that are there and showing that there are other ways of being an academic other than somebody who works continuously will be great. You know, if I'm my colleagues, their job is their hobby as well. You know, that's great for them that they want to work all the time and do that, but it's just that it's not what everyone wants to do and so it shouldn't be the only way you can do the job. That was Professor Jenny Adams, an astroparticle physicist at the University of Canterbury. Katie also spoke to her daughter, Kaya Jorgensen. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. Follow Our Changing World for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, please help us spread the word by telling a friend or family member. You can visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds to see pictures and links related to these stories. And you can also explore our extensive back catalogue of episodes there and sign up to our monthly newsletter. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, we're there too. Come and say hi, we're at RNZ Science. Now, RNZ has a huge range of amazing podcasts. 
Just click on the podcast and series tab and have a look. In fact, another season of Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower is returning soon. If you haven't already, go have a listen to some of the previous episodes. James Nokise invites famous people into his shower to talk mental health, headspace and happiness. As ever, thanks for listening. I'm Claire Gincannon. Kia pai to wiki. 